He was sold twice in his career. The first time for a million, the second time for under 400 bucks. It's a cautionary tale, which in this case has a happy ending. We'll explain. Plus, is the Jockey Club, the breed registry, about to become the operator of racetracks? It's a strange situation. We'll discuss on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll out. Man, they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hip-hopping finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full in the gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. He was a late bloomer, but then again, as a half brother to the great Zenyatta, you'd almost expect that. Just as the great mare didn't hit her best stride until age four, her little sibling, super spectacular, didn't debut until June of his three-year-old year, back in 2010. He finished up strong in his debut at Belmont Park, grabbing fourth place just before the wire. A month later, he got knocked sideways at the start of a race at Monmouth and was never a factor. He came in sixth. But Super Spectacular had not only royal breeding, but pretty high-achieving human connections. Owned by Charlotte Weber's Live Oak Plantation, trained by Bill Mott, and ridden by two-time Eclipse Award-winning jockey John Velasquez, Charlotte Weber had paid just over a million dollars for Super Spectacular at the Keeneland September Yearling Sale a couple of years earlier. So on closing weekend at Saratoga in 2010, eight years ago, it was almost a no-brainer that Super Spectacular would start to live up to his billing. Super Spectacular now makes a move after that lead. Doctor Peach revving up third on the outside now. Super Spectacular Batesh head to head for the lead inside the final furlong. Super Spectacular fighting his way to the lead. Batesh a final try from Bellhouse and Doctor Peach. It is Super Spectacular. He would add two more wins that fall, one at Keeneland and one at Aqueduct. They would be the only three wins of his career. He retired in 2012 with three wins from nine starts. What happened to Super Spectacular after that is not entirely known at this time, but where he eventually wound up is a cautionary tale that still plagues the horse racing industry, despite the best intentions of so many people who are involved in thoroughbred aftercare. To help us fill in what we can of the puzzle. We welcome in Misty Lewis, who now owns Super Spectacular, or as she calls him, Seven. You'll hear why in a moment. And we also welcome Margaret Ransom, who wrote about the story of Super Spectacular for the website usracing.com. Let's start with Miss Lewis. What were the circumstances around your finding this horse? You know, it was it was amazing because it should never have happened.、Um, we were due to go out of town, and my husband ended up. Not being able to go, so my daughter begged to go to this auction, and I didn't want to go because they're so sad. But she drugged me, and、um, he was there, and it was meant to be. That, that's all I can I can say is I know it was meant to be. 
what kind of an auction was that? It was a horse auction, a very small one. Um, as a matter of fact, I think they had been closed down for a while. The, um, it was in East Anoli, Georgia, which is Tacoa, basically. And I don't think they'd been opened back up for very long. Um, but there were maybe 50, 60 horses there. Not very many. It wasn't that big. And this is uh, an auction that's known to be frequented by kill buyers or no? Yes. Yes, sir. Unfortunately, it is. Now, Margaret Ransom wrote that you're not really much of a racing fan. Your knowledge of the sport doesn't extend much past Secretariat. So what made you fall in love with this horse? I got my first thoroughbred, Torrente Trace. He was from Argentina, off the track, when I was 10 years old. So I loved the thoroughbreds from the time I was young. Um, That's what I showed. They're just so different from any other horse. They're just magnificent. And... So as soon as I saw him, I knew, um, and then when I, you know, saw the tattoo, I uh, confirmed, yes, he was a, a track pony. So that that just drew me to him all the more. But it wouldn't have mattered whether he was a thoroughbred or not. If you could have seen this animal standing in the filth he was standing in and the look in his eyes, you wouldn't have left him either, no matter what he was. Margaret Ransom, can you paint a more complete picture of what this situation was like? In talking to Misty, I think, yes, if you've ever been to an auction like this, their horses are sort of kept in these separate sort of, I don't know, they're paddocks, corrals sort of with iron bars and gates and stuff. And according to Misty, she told me that um, her daughter's friend had run up and said, oh, there's a thoroughbred in the back. And they went way to the very back. And that means that they're trying to keep them from people, from seeing a, a whole lot of them and seeing the condition they're in. So I guess Missy went back there. She said she went back there and she saw them. And I mean, they're filthy. Like they're, they're filthy. They don't clean up between sales. And she decided that she was going to have him. And, and fortunately for him, she, she was determined. And I think if memory serves, she outbid what was likely a kill buyer. So it was absolutely destiny that she was there that day to save that horse in that condition. All right, wait a minute. Why would you bring a horse to an auction when you don't want that many people to see him? You don't want to feed him. They don't want to give them the care that they deserve. At the point that he was purchased, he was very, very thin, and it would cost a lot of money to get him back to an acceptable physical state. And whoever put him in that position in his recent past didn't want to deal with him anymore and probably just wanted to dispose of him and pretend that he never existed anymore. And that's the sad thing. And if it wasn't for Misty, he probably would have slipped through the cracks and we would have never seen him again. Well, hold on. We'll get to that question in a moment. But Misty, I presume that the amount of money it's going to take to bring him back to good health doesn't scare you too much. You know, I wasn't really thinking about that, to be quite honest with you. I just knew I had to save him, but it's going to be a lot. Um, I have one horse named Colby, and he's been our world. So, you know, I know what it costs to have a healthy horse, much less one that needs uh, lots of care. But, you know, I truly believed that it didn't matter. My faith is strong. I believe that we would figure it out. Whatever he needed, we'd give him. I have a a wonderful husband who supports me (laughs) um, to a point, and I knew he wouldn't let him go without anything. Our animals are like our kids. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned animals, plural. Tell us about 
what your life is like, how animals fit into your life. Um, my life revolves around them. Like I said, we have Colby. He's a 10-year-old appendix that my daughter shows, and he um, has been our world for the last three years. We have four dogs, and I couldn't imagine my life without the animals. From the time I wake up in the morning to the time I go to bed, it's about them. And, um, you know, they make us a better person. At least they do me. Do you live on a farm? Oh, no, sir. I wish I did. <laughs> no, sir. Just a couple of acres. Or I would have Seven and Colby at home with me, <laughs> not boarded. Right. And we'll get to why his name is Seven in, in just a few minutes. But, Margaret Ransom, let's get back to what we were saying before. What do we know about how or why this horse ended up in this situation? To be honest, we don't know much. You know, he was a pretty good racehorse. He went to Bill Mott. He was bought for a lot of money. And Charlotte Weber and her Live Oak Plantation, who bought him for, I guess, $1.15 million at Keeneland, they sent him to Bill Mott, and he won a couple races, and then they threw him into Stakes Company, and he was a decent fourth a couple of times, and then he got a really long layoff and came back after about 18 months and had a couple of fifth-place finishes, and I guess they were done. They weren't going to go on with them. And as of now, I guess Misty can explain more, but he doesn't have any like outward signs of any significant injury. They, I guess they have x-rayed him and gone over him pretty carefully, but he was retired and I guess he was sent back to live Oak in Florida and they gelded him. There's some stories trickling in from people who don't really want to have their names out there saying that live Oak found him a home and thought they were doing right by him. And like Misty said to me, like she has no doubt in her mind. I have no doubt in my mind either that he left that farm in good condition. The condition that rescued him in is not the same as when he left that farm. I mean, her son is a, is an Olympian and a world driving champion. There's just no way that they knowingly put that horse in harm's way. What happened in the four years since he was supposedly rehomed we don't know. It's a mystery. We're looking for it. And that's part of the reason why I think Misty wanted to talk to you is to sort of fill in the puzzle pieces of his life and try to figure it out because we just don't know. And no one's really talking. Has anyone contacted Charlotte Weber to see what she knows? I did. I contacted Live Oak to let them know that I had him. I sent pictures of his current state so they would be aware. And I received a envelope the other day with some pictures of his racing, and that's all I've heard from them. Interesting. How did you come to rename the horse Seven? <laughs> well, his, the number on his hip was 27. And then after I bought him, he didn't even have a halter or a lead, so we had to run to the little guy in the trailer and buy one, and the total of the bill was $27. And then my total bill from purchasing him was $427. It is also my husband's lucky number, and that's how he got it, 777, and it fits him perfect. Don't tell me you also used to watch Star Trek Voyager and admire Jerry Ryan's character, Seven of Nine. No, that would not be me. <laughs> well, how is Seven doing? He's wonderful. A little sore still on that right front. That's why we did x-rays. I was concerned because I could tell he was a little uncomfortable on it. It looked like he had had an old abscess, but not that old. So we x-rayed. We didn't find anything scary or worrisome. 
and then the farrier agreed that it was sore from the recent abscess, and now we think he may have another one coming through, but we just put those shoes on him, so we're just going to have to kind of play it by ear and see how, you know, how it pans out um, before I, I'm really picky about what goes in their body, so trying really hard not to have to give him any butte or anything like that unless he absolutely has to have it. Margaret Ransom, what reaction have you heard about this story since it was published? It's been tremendous. I think there's been a lot of praise toward Missy and her daughter, Hannah. Hannah has started a Facebook page to keep people informed about his health and how he's progressing. There's also a GoFundMe. Now, Missy didn't want any money. People were offering money, and they wanted it above board. They wanted everybody to know how much was donated and how much was going to be used on the horse. They intend to post receipts. So people can also go and donate to the GoFundMe. You can find it, I think, on the U.S. Racing website. You can find it there under the news section. But overall, like I think the support in the horse community, not just in like racing and breeding and, and the thoroughbred community, it, the horse community has really sort of rallied and, and embraced these people, strangers in Georgia, who just did the right thing for this horse. And it's a reminder. It's a wonderful horse, like wonderfully bred horse with this tremendous pedigree and related to, to the great Zenyatta can slip through the cracks. Like the lesser known horses that, you know, the, for lack of a better word, the cheaper horses, the claiming horses, they're sitting ducks. They're going to need us more than ever. And I think it's a wake up call, another one that we need to protect our horses. We absolutely need to do more. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we hear so much about the efforts being made in the world of thoroughbred aftercare. We've detailed some of them on this show in the past. Where does the industry stand in terms of finding homes or second careers for these horses when their racing days are over? You know, that's that's a good question. There are some great organizations. There is Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. They sit and govern the rescues, and they they make sure that the rescues that, that go and find these horses are sort of doing the proper thing when it comes to thoroughbreds. There's some new organizations, Rick Porter and his racing manager, Victoria Keith, they started the NTWO, which is the National Thoroughbred Welfare Organization. And they've been working with some of the tracks in Louisiana for some of the stuff that's been going down. It's a slow process. And I wish I had all the answers. I wish I had magic words to keep it from happening, but we're getting there. The awareness is there. You know, we just have to continue to lay new ground and and pave new roads to make sure that these things don't happen. Because like I said, if if it can happen to a horse like seven, the lesser known ones from the lesser, the smaller tracks, they're in desperate trouble. It could be bad. Well, you've heard the saying many times, if even one benefits from all the work being done, it was worth it. And here at least is one who clearly has. And thank you both so much for sharing his story with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was wonderful talking to you. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, is it really possible that the Jockey Club, the registry of the breed, could also become an owner of racetracks? Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. When you were in school, maybe some of you listening are still in school, you probably used to get report cards to take home so your parents could see what your grades were. At your jobs, maybe you have a performance review every year, some kind of an assessment of how you're doing, delivered by the person or group that has jurisdiction over your work. You see it in sports as well. 
NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell delivers a State of the League address during Super Bowl week. In horse racing, there is no per se league that has absolute governance over the whole sport. But as Jackie Gleason used to say, "Don't get me started on that." The closest the sport has is the Jockey Club, which every August in Saratoga convenes a conference that acts as something of a yearly performance review. It's typically an insightful, if not really headline-making, exercise. And this year's conference on August twelfth was humming along in much the same fashion. But just before the end, just before the end of the two-hour meeting, came a statement from Jockey Club Chairman Stuart Janney that made many who were listening do a bit of a double take. The board of stewards gave our management team the go-ahead to further investigate some additional projects. Develop plans to consider track ownership and operations. Quite simply, we would willingly step in as an owner, lessor, or partner when a racing resource is imperiled, not unlike what the Jockey Club of the United Kingdom has done. The Jockey Club has and will be there for this industry. Wow! So, according to that statement. It's conceivable that the jockey club could do for the racing industry what the federal government did for the banking and automotive industries a decade ago: step in to provide financial assistance to keep the businesses afloat. Not a lot of details followed what you just heard, so it's hard to tell what that whole effort would look like. Nonetheless, Mr. Janney's comments open up a huge Pandora's box of issues, and we need to chew on those a little bit. Okay, maybe more than a little bit. So to do that, we welcome back to Win the Gate Frank Angst of Blood Horse Magazine. He covers a number of off-the-track issues in thoroughbred racing. Frank, what did you think when you heard that comment from Stuart Janney? It's where the jockey club's at right now, and in terms of, I think they want to put it out there that they are willing to to take on that role. And the British Jockey Club had spoke earlier. At the round table, and outlined some of the success that they've had, and they are now the the largest track owner in Britain. I think the Jockey Club wants to understands that we can't continue to lose tracks in big cities. I mean, Suffolk Downs is still barely around on life support, but you look at、uh, losing a track in in Boston, you know, a track that was running regular meets and is now down to just a few days a year. That has a huge impact when when you're relying on on simulcasts and people coming out each day, and you know besides playing Suffolk, all those people are going to be looking at other tracks as well. Is this just a market correction? Could you not argue that tracks closing is a natural extension of the declining foal crop, and that all of this is just a big market correction? Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure about that because one of the things that Unfortunately, that we're seeing is a lot of the tracks today are owned by casinos, and unfortunately, some of those casino owners, their first priority is most assuredly not racing; it's the casino interest. So, when you have a setup like that, and racing is viewed as the bottom rung of the totem pole by the owners of these tracks, that can be real problematic. So I think what the jockey club wants to say is, hey, we're an option to keep racing going when needed in the right, you know, the right place if the right track comes along, and it's certainly better than closing it down. And then beyond that, I think the jockey club has some ideas on how to invest in racing and make it a success. 
also at the round table that they showed how few of our tracks, unfortunately, are well liked on social media in terms of the experience that you get when you when you attend racing there, and that's problematic in a sports atmosphere that you can hardly name a major league baseball team or NBA team or NFL football team that hasn't had a new stadium, a new arena, a new ballpark come along and and just within the last 30 years, many within the last 10 years. So when you're competing against that and you're going to tracks that have not kept up, it becomes a pretty dramatic uh, comparison for fans and and they're voting by by not attending. I, I think the jockey club, if if the right opportunity came along, they, they would like to show that there are other ways to do that by fixing up facilities and marketing the sport the correct way that they obviously believe in horse racing. Do you trust that they know how to do that? Well, that, that would definitely be uh, some, a new challenge for them, yes. They haven't done that before. But, you know, they have people within their organization that are sharp people and committed to racing, and I'm sure they would would find the right people to pull that off. We're talking with Frank Angst of the Blood Horse here on In the Gate. So how would this work if the Jockey Club has a direct interest in some of this country's tracks but not others? Well, that's the thing. I, I think it, you know, talking with Jim Gagliano afterwards, it would have to be the right spot, as, and it, this is very much in the initial stages. I think they and it just wanted to put out there that, that they do have this interest if the right opportunity came along. I see what you're saying. Would you, you know? Would you be playing favorites? I'm not sure exactly how all that would play out, but I think they wanted the industry to know that it is an option. Now, one of the ancillary points that was mentioned in the roundtable, and it's not the first time it's been mentioned at the roundtable, is how different tracks overlap in their post times. That two races go off at almost exactly the same time. Let's say at Gulfstream and in New York. Would the jockey club operating some of these tracks be able, in theory, to alleviate some of that? I think that most assuredly would be something that they could alleviate. They already have a program uh, through their Encompass technology that they offer to tracks for use, and many of the tracks have signed up. And as it was noted there, it's been re- the problem's been reduced, but in no way has it been solved, unfortunately. So I think uh, the Jockey Club most assuredly would use a program like that as they, uh, one of their subsidiaries is already championing it and offering it to, uh, to racing today. Now, back in 2010, Congress passed legislation to impose strict standards on banks while at the same time giving them a tremendous amount of financial backing. The legislation, the Dodd-Frank Act, called the banks systematically important financial institutions, the fancy term for too big to fail. What about struggling racetracks here in the United States? You can't tell me that this is the jockey club's equivalent of calling these tracks too big to fail. I think what they're looking at, though, is the health of the industry overall. And uh, if you continue to lose tracks in big cities, it would be a tremendous loss. And I think they they see opportunity for success as they as they outline tracks can be run under the not for profit model, and quite frankly, I think that model has has served the industry well when it's been used. So I, I don't see it as necessarily a huge money maker or anything like that. I think they would look to be helping the industry and keeping things going. 
it certainly would have advantages to of marketing the sport under one umbrella. There's none of that today. There's not any national marketing of the sport. Jockey Club took that on on their own, seeing a void uh, with with them. They created America's Best Racing, which is, in a small way addresses that. But you know, to this day, I still hear people say "Go baby, go." Well, that was an NTRA national campaign from 20 years ago, maybe more. <laughs> You'll have to look that up. But what I'm getting at is like that's how it, there hasn't been much since, and the tracks bailed out on NTRA, didn't provide that funding anymore. So, so that type of marketing is gone, and uh, it's really I think what the Jockey Club envisions is just. Again, I think they're just looking out for the best interests of the sport. So how do you see this situation ultimately playing out? You know, I, I don't want to say what tracks could go under because uh, things can change a lot from day to day. But I, I think, say you had a track with a nice facility that ownership was looking to abandon, I think rather than have that property just sold off and become the, the latest development in a large city because that, you know, unfortunately a lot of our tracks are located in, you know, prime land is coming back again and it's worth money. But, but I think uh, what they would offer is come together with the horsemen and trying to find a way to keep racing going in a situation like that. Very interesting. A lot of grist for the mill to be played out over the next few months. So thank you so much, Frank Hanks, for uh, shedding some light on this. Thanks, Barry. You're welcome. Our thanks to Frank Angst, Margaret Ransom, and Misty Lewis. This year, the Racing Hall of Fame elected just one new member from among all of the modern-day nominees. It makes you wonder what the voters are thinking. Indeed, what happens if they even decide to give Justify the squeeze? He won the Triple Crown for sure, but only made six starts. No Hall of Famer's number is so low. He never faced his elders, never carried added weight. Does he belong beside Round Table and Forgo? But let's be honest, would the Hall of Fame pass up the chance for added media buzz if Bob Baffert came? That's why, though Baffert doesn't race there much, Saratoga Racecourse inducted Baffert into its Walk of Fame. With all that said, I think one way to judge an athlete's career is just how dominant that athlete was in his day. There really was no touching Justify. He was the best. Exclusion from the hall? I say, no way. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.